0: Love Talk Radio. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents What's Your Prescription for Balance? Featuring your host, Dr. Glenna Calder.
1: Good afternoon, or morning, if you're in the West Coast. Here it's 12 o'clock noon on Nova Scotia. I'm your host, Dr. Glenna Calder, for What's Your Prescription for Balance? Thanks for joining us. Today we have a special guest, Sean Gilsler, Australian-trained psychologist counsellor and psychotherapist. Are you there, Sean?
2: Yes, I am, Glenna. Thanks for having me. A little bit about myself. I've been in Canada now for about a year. been working... I've worked at a drug and alcohol addiction centre for the first six months, and now I've opened up my own practice in Halifax in the city. Before that, I worked in Australia as a psychologist. And I mainly worked in addictions but also worked a lot with people working through mental health issues such as anxiety and depression. I moved here because I've got a Canadian wife and three young kids and we wanted the simpler life of Atlantic Canada. And um, we're enjoying it a lot, getting used to the different seasons and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, that's a little bit about me.
1: Good. And I can say that your children are absolutely gorgeous because... I've been able to see all three girls. I think, are they about age one, three, and five?
2: Yeah, that's it. That's it. They're losing their Australian accents. They're saying <laughs> tomato instead of tomato, so, but that's a small price to pay. <laughs> so
1: Okay. And no. were two of them born in Australia?
2: Yep. Two were born in Australia and one was born here, so they were all... I think, yeah, they're all Canadian citizens at the moment, so, yeah, they it's good. Three little girls under five, so it's a busy household for sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, I'm really excited to speak with you today and have a discussion about our mental health and the importance of nourishing our mental health and taking care of our mental health because I think sometimes we overlook that part, and when we think about health, we think about physical health so much. And mental health and emotional health seems to lag behind
2: so Mm -hmm. could you
1: start Sean by telling our listeners where you think mental health fits into the the whole health of the person
2: actually my job in Australia my title actually was the dual diagnosis coordinator so actually I worked and the dual diagnosis part was around addiction working with um, mental health issues and they obviously they coexist quite a lot but It also opened up for a lot of mental health issues coexisting with physical ailments. So, and I got to see it a lot, and probably the big three that are out there that people mostly present with would be anxiety, depression, and addictions of some sort. So, if I start with anxiety, people that would present with anxiety nearly always are talking about how they've have major digestive issues in fact a lot of people would turn up and they would report that they hadn't had a solid stool in months you know and it was all connected to the anxiety because they're holding their anxiety in their stomach right so i saw that connection as well and also anxiety because of the increase in blood pressure and the heart rate people would report about the numbness in the fingers and the toes and the headaches and the the racing heart and chest pain and all that sort of stuff and even blurred vision in extreme cases. So, in fact, here in Canada, it's the same in Australia, about 50% of the people who present at emergency thinking they're having a heart attack are in fact just having a panic attack or a, a highly anxious moment. So the fact that it can get such to such a bad point Where people think they're actually having a heart attack when they're just not managing their anxiety in an appropriate way. That's how I've seen anxiety manifest physically in people, for sure.
1: Perfect. And obviously, as a naturopathic doctor, I see that a lot in my practice. So it's, I think it's valuable that you know that you see that connection between the mental, emotional, with the physical. I think I'm sure a lot of your job is explaining to people. These are the physical symptoms that are happening because of the anxiety or the depression.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like a light bulb moment sometimes because people will walk in and they'll start to talk about their mental health because they don't make the connection and then I'll just say to them, well, how are your bowel movements or do you get headaches or do you often get the tip? can you get the numb fingers? It's a common one as well for anxiety and they're like, yeah, I do. You know, all the panic attacks where people get blurred vision and and all that sort of stuff. And it's, it's quite comforting for a lot of people because along with dealing with the mental health side of things, which they're quite worried about, then they also think that they've got heart conditions or brain tumours and all this sort of stuff. So, you know, that's all part of the healing process as well as watching those symptoms alleviate as people get better at dealing with their anxiety or depression, etc.
1: Anxiety would be the top one, would it? And then would depression and anxiety yeah. come after that?
2: Yeah. It's a funny mix because they, it's, it's rare that someone walks in and I can solely put them in one little basket like, oh, yeah, this person's got anxiety. So what happens is people all walk in and there might be some post-traumatic stress there might be some grief issues going on there could be some addiction depression or anxiety or or a mixture of a lot of things you know like people live a long life and someone comes knocking on the door and they're 45 years old and they sit down and they tell their story the things that people go through in their life and if you're not dealing with it in an appropriate way as you go along that stuff all builds up and People hold it like I always draw a picture of, them, of a person for everyone and draw a big circle in the middle and I say this is where you hold it and you can physically feel where they're holding all this stuff and I've always thought when people do start to get better that the term enlightenment, it's real because it's like a lightening of all that burden they've been carrying around in their stomach and for all those years, you know, they're able to deal with stuff. Oh, the depression as well, I was going to mention the depression, like people will come and they'll talk about being fatigued and insomnia, you know, the the major symptoms of depression is that oversleeping and all that stuff, and and then you start to look at their diet, and their diet's nine times out of ten, they're terrible, so then it's the whole chicken or the egg thing, like... Are they so fatigued because of the depression or is there poor nutrition? So, And it's always something in the middle. So it's working on both factors. It's the mental health and it's like also the nutritional side of things and it's getting people actively involved on both sides because otherwise they won't improve because one will pull if the other one's only getting the attention. A
1: patient actually gave me this analogy yesterday is when they understood that one thing didn't get them to where they are, then they understood one thing isn't going to get them out of where they are either.
2: Yeah, that's exactly it. Some people will come and see me and they think this is going to be fixed quickly, but, like, it's a, it's been a long road to get there. You know, let's talk about addiction quickly. Someone will come to me and they've been drinking for 30 years, like... Every day, like, it's, it's not an uncommon thing for someone to drink every day for 30 years and they turn up, they're 50 years old, they might have some liver issues, some congestive heart stuff happening to them, even kidney issues. And then they think they can just, they think the work's easy, but it's 30 years of change, right? And they have to change a lot of things. They change their diet, change their mental health outlook on things and have a look at why they were drinking. What have they been self-medicating? It's quite a process, <laughs> so.
1: I'm sure it's very different than if you had a six-month-old book an appointment with you and come and see you.
2: <laughs> yeah, it is. It is for <laughs> sure. I'd lo- I don't know how I would deal with a six-month-old client. <laughs> <And so. laughs>
1: do, you, do you think, do you think, Sean, that we spend less time and effort taking care of our mental health now than we did, say, 100, 150 years ago?
2: Yeah, that's a tricky one because I think 100, 150 years ago, people suffered in silence, whereas in the last 20 years, there's been like a permissive environment in our Western culture where people are able to say that, you know, look, I've got anxiety or I feel depressed. And I think maybe 100 years ago, if I looked at it, and it's hard to know because I can't time travel, but maybe people are anxious about food and shelter right you know you had the wars and the depression and a lot more illness almost when i look at it today it's sort of what people are anxious about today too it's like that food and shelter but it's it's times 10 it's all about keeping up with the joneses now it's not about survival people get so anxious seems to have a lot of roots back to money and I'm not good enough and all that sort of stuff. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. Like, I lived in Asia for 10 years and the breakdown of the family unit in our Western culture, I think, has been a significant factor in that mental health has become quite prevalent here. And in Asia, I saw families stick together and they'll support and you'll often have grandparents and even great-grandparents under the same roof all looking after each other. That almost wipes out that whole senior care model that we've got in the Western culture now that's such a burden on all our resources. And it's because family are still actively involved. Yeah, it's a tricky one. I think maybe there was still anxiety 100 years ago, but now it's more permissive and people are able to say, you know, it's not about pulling your boots up and getting on with your job, it's about... Yeah, you know, I am a bit anxious. What can I do about it? maybe people are searching for that bit of happiness.
1: Seems like a beautiful thing that when you talk about Asia and how the families, there's generations there supporting the mother and the father. And there's, as you know, with the dad with three kids, having all that support would change, I would imagine, how you show up.
2: Oh, it would. Like, personally, I'll come home from work, and if it's been... If it's been a longish day, the last thing you want to do is read stories and bath time and all that, but you do it because you know that... Oh, personally, I know of the importance of that because I have clients sit in the chair and say, my dad never read me stories. <laughs> so I know the importance mm-hmm. of that stuff. But if you came home and you had grandma doing the bath or grandma or granddad cooking the dinner and all that sort of stuff, it's that, that village environment, right, that we've lost... Even me growing up, I knew all my neighbors. And it's the same in Canada as it is in Australia. People put these fences up now and don't even talk to their neighbors anymore, you know. Psychological walls, when you put them up, you keep the good out as well as the bad, right? So people forget about that stuff.
1: Sean, do you see any patterns in families that struggle maybe with happiness or that struggle maybe with depression? Do you do you see it from passed on from one generation to the other, whether it's genetic or environment or whatever the causes that it's being passed down?
2: Yeah, I, I do think there's family patterns. When I'm working with clients and they talk about well I'm let's talk about alcohol, like I'm I drink and I'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic I tend to try to not let people get away with that. You know, like I believe in... There, there's studies that will show that there's a genetic predisposition for all sorts of illnesses. But I, a lot of the time I think that that takes the onus of responsibility off the person who's trying to get better. So I try to... I definitely will help the person connect the behavioural aspect to it, like they've seen what their family has grown up doing. They've seen Dad get drunk. They've seen Dad come home and call Mum every name under the sun and all that. So that's what they've learned and that's what they grow into. But they can change that, whereas the danger of that whole genetic thing is is that people go, well, this is how I am and I can't change. And so I try to sway away from that a little bit. I see abusers, People who've been abused become abusers. Children of alcoholics become alcoholics. And unhappy parents pass on the unhappiness, right? So I do see it a lot. They they say we've got core beliefs that are developed in very early childhood and it's our environment and what we observe around us and whether we're going to trust the world or not trust the world. It's such a crucial time, you know? And most of my job is... Breaking those core beliefs that people have formed before the age of ten, what they've observed around them, and 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 getting people to challenge what's what's been instilled in them, and they even, because they know that it's not the truth. But sometimes those core beliefs they stick with us, and they just keep popping up at the inappropriate times, right? And quickly, as you said, I've got three young girls, and so it's become evident to me and I see the importance that every decision I make regarding them, you know, how I talk to my wife teaches my daughters how men are gonna treat women and, and how I offer them a safe environment teaches them boundaries, and, but most importantly is how I laugh and play and appreciate the moment is teaching them happiness, you know? So it's real important. Yeah, <laughs> you can see I'm passionate about all this stuff.
1: <laughs> you are. I had a question, and you talking about your daughters, you made me forget. That was such so beautiful that you see how whether you have sons or daughters.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a living lab for your children, right?
1: When you talked about genetics, it reminded me about when I had when I you see a patient, and they talk about their cholesterol and they say, well, it's genetic. It's you know my grandmother, my parents, whether I eat good or bad it's it's already been determined and that's really mm-hmm. sad to Think that they think that's predetermined where we all know about epigenetics now where we have that control to turn on the gene or keep that gene turned off and that depends on lifestyle.
2: That's definitely it and like I've seen people that have been stuck into their 60s and 70s and just within six months they turn around their whole mental outlook on life and the difference in their life and it's just amazing, you know, and then all different ages. You're never too young and never too old to make that switch and start really appreciating life and walking through life with a big heart and happiness, you know. It's, its I think, it's the most important thing there is, for sure.
1: I think so, too. Right? Mm-hmm. So next, um, after we take a short break, Sean, I'm going to ask you some more questions about happiness and children and our culture. It's been really interesting so far, so I look forward to the next part of the show.
2: Okay, great.
0: We hope you're enjoying this broadcast of Firefly Willows L-I-V-E on Blog Talk Radio. For information on Firefly Willows, please explore our website, fireflywillows.com, or like us on Facebook.
1: Welcome back to Watch Your Prescription for Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Glenna Calder, and today we have Sean Gilsler, trained in Australia as a psychologist, and he's here speaking with us about the importance of our mental and emotional health. How are you doing there, Sean?
2: I'm great, thanks.
1: Perfect. So I want to jump right into the next question I would love to ask you is, do you see anything and our children today that worries you about their future in regards to their state of happiness?
2: Um, I suppose as a parent it's, in the last five years it's something that I've really thought about a lot and you know you, you can't help but worry about whether global warming is going to affect us and the fact that things are getting tougher to buy a house and monetary things and all that sort of stuff but I like to think about the mental health of my kids, you know, like, and I do, I, I, what I've observed is that there's this increasing pressure on people to consume and constantly compare with others, and and also there's the lack of physical play and the movement towards technology rather than nature, and that's what's worrying me the most, is that kids are, kids are pulling back from the nature that we sort of grew up with, and they're... You know, on their eye devices and all that sort of stuff. I don't want to be the old man sitting on the porch complaining about the old, the younger generation. But I think <laughs> there's, there's a good balance. You know, there must be some good balance where kids are learning, getting to play again. You know, I think they're losing that that childlike play. You know, and actually, there's quite a big movement now where there's retreats where people in their 20s and 30s and even 40s who have grown up in this technolo- technology industry are going away on retreats and learning how to play for the first time in their life. <laughs> and, you know, like it's, it has an amazing effect. Yeah, the good thing is in Nova Scotia here that I've seen programs have been introduced, they've got a really good, they've got a good psychology department working with the schools here and they're introducing programs to teach kids mindfulness skills and getting back to nature and self-awareness and kindness and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, even if that just gets a little bit of a message to the kids, it's going to have a good impact. So it's good to see that people are waking up in the education industry and realising that, there's a more holistic approach to bringing up kids. Right.
1: Do you think we're in a better place now than we were 10 or 15 years ago in terms of keeping our children in touch with nature?
2: Um, it's so tough for me, you know, because I've lived I've lived in six countries in the last 15 years, so every place has been different. <laughs> Say Asia, for example, they have—they seem to have a festival every weekend and it's families and kids out, right? But then they have a massive gaming culture where people lock themselves in a room for 48 hours and play computer games. So there's the two extremes there. And I think, as you know, I'm from Australia, so where I was grew up or where I lived with my kids when they were really young, it's endless summer. We don't have a winter. So there's lots of outdoor stuff there, you know. But I think people are waking up, I'm hearing more and more, you know, like, oh, I'm limiting my kid's iPhone time or their iPad time. And, got, you know, for every two hours outside, you can have an hour on the iPad. So I think people are more aware of that sort of stuff and how consumerism was starting to affect kids with such with things like obesity and inactivity and stuff like that. So. And I think it's only going to get better, right? Like that awareness and people are starting to panic a little bit and with that comes some action, which is always a good thing.
1: I think so too. I think panicking, we usually we have to panic a little bit first and then we come back somewhere in the middle, which is, which is yeah, where we want yep. to be. Do you mm. think, Sean, as a culture, that we have the definition of happiness correct? Are we Are we close to where we should be there?
2: I don't think so. I don't think so. I think the people I try to surround myself with, I think I try to surround myself with people who derive happiness internally, but I think culturally, right now, happiness seems to be defined by comparing ourselves with others. Is my house big enough? Is my car shiny enough? Have I got a cottage? Am I going overseas enough? All that sort of stuff, right? And it's all external and often I'll explain to people when they come in and see me, I'll be like, all that they'll say, I don't know why I'm so unhappy. I've got a great job. I've got a big house. I've got a big car. And I'm like, well, but what are you doing for happiness? It's all this go, go, go and acquiring things, but there's nothing nurturing the internal happiness of the person, if that makes sense to you.
1: We're struggling for happiness and we want to be happier, We're looking too much at the external checklist rather than the internal checklist.
2: Yeah, and that's it. You know, like, and don't get me wrong, I grew up this where money equals happiness. And in my family, the more money you had, is the more people wanted, my family wanted to talk to you. Like, if you didn't have enough money, then you weren't a good enough person and all that stuff. So I've seen it. And it takes a lot of self-awareness for me sometimes to to pull myself back from saying, no, I don't need to buy a brand new car. My car's still running. <laughs> or I don't need a big mansion. Like, at the moment, my wife um, is really tied up in this new movement that's coming across called the tiny house movement. And it's, a, it's so, almost like a backlash against the McMansions where people are building these tiny houses, maybe 300 square feet, Rather than the three thousand square feet, and it's it's becoming a big, big movement where people are like, no, I, I'm not going to spend half a million dollars on a house. I'm going to spend fifty thousand, and it's going to have everything I want. So there's a, there's all sorts of movements everywhere around the world that are starting to wake up to the the that consumerism isn't making them happy, right? So I yeah. love that the tiny but, house movement. I got to look that up. Oh, you'll. You will be so surprised. You should see the houses are just beautiful. There's a documentary on it as well, and, you know, like, it's it's quite a good movement. <laughs> so.
1: And do, you, know the, do you, know. you happen to know the name of the documentary?
2: Um, I think it's just called Tiny House. I think if you okay. Google Tiny House and documentary, you'd find it. I'm pretty sure, because it's on Netflix. I know that. <laughs> Okay,
1: thank you, because I'm sure our listeners would love, I mean, that sounds really interesting, and I Mm. like how you call it the the (laughs) McMansions.
2: Yeah, they are, you know, and that's, you know, I've been stuck in that before. I grew up in a McMansion with the big pool and all that, and I suppose that's what I wanted, but, yeah, things shift and things have changed, and I'm happy for that.
1: For sure. Well, i got to say, some of my most... The clearest memories I have and funnest are in the e- times when I'm going to sleep at night and I'm talking to my sibling, whichever sibling of mine I was sharing a room with at the time, and I think, wow, we don't have that anymore. Siblings doubling up in rooms, and that's when you, you get mm-hmm. to know each other, and whether you're arguing or you're... Whatever it is, it's, you're bonding.
2: Yeah, that's it. That's it, and it's like... You know, like it breaks my heart that people, that siblings will, you'll see them and they'll have keep out on their door. I know teenagers can be teenagers, but like, you know, it's so they can stay in their room and be on their iPhone and chat to people for six hours. It's, mm. Things have got a bit lost, but people are starting to wake up, so there's a lot of hope.
1: So, So, Sean, what's your definition of happiness, your personal definition?
2: Um... Well, simply, my my definition is not being stuck in yesterday and not being worried about tomorrow. You know, like just being here <laughs> today and just living mm-hmm. and having a happy life like that. So, like, I think I think if it, this is a real simplified um, analogy, but if you talk about the yesterday stuff, then that's depression. If you talk about the tomorrow stuff, there's your anxiety. So, if you can pull yourself into the present moment, and that's basically the ba- the basis of mindfulness, right? And mm. that's what I think is happiness, you know? And luckily, there's a huge movement in psychology now towards happiness. And in my own practice, I like to address the following with my clients. I like to... First, I like to find out what's happening cognitively. Like, are there any unhelpful thoughts... You know, are they the result of their core beliefs they developed as children? And then supporting the client to work out whether those thoughts are useful for them anymore and implementing tools for them to be able to um, push them away or like just, you know, to change those thoughts and to change their outlook on their life and then getting into mindfulness teaching people mindfulness you know it's the buzzword that's out there now you hear it all the time but it's as old as buddha right it's a pretty much a buddhist principle and but it's been referred to in psychological texts since the 70s and you know like it's it's basically moment by moment awareness of our thoughts feelings and body sensations in our environment you know so like Someone told me years and years ago, it's really corny, but they said, the present is a gift. And I used to think, oh, that's so corny. But then it sunk into me so much over the time, you know. Like, I thought, it really is, you know. Like, all we've got today to live, you know. Like, of course, you've got to plan for your future financially and you've got to put money away for the kids and all that sort of stuff. But worrying about things in the future or getting worried about things that have already happened. It's such a waste of time in my opinion, you know, and it's the opposite of happiness. (laughs) Mm. I love
1: your definition. It's simple and profound, but I also think you can, when we maybe are stuck in our head or we're looking for an answer, if we were to just look at that definition, it covers a lot of territory.
2: It definitely does. And the final thing that I always like to get people thinking about, and this comes from, there's a a new theory, you know, like in psychology there's been a lot of different theories over the years and probably the big one that everyone knows is CBT and a little branch off that sort of thing has been the acceptance commitment therapy and that's CBT mixed with mindfulness, you could almost say, but part of that is they get people to divine their values, like empowering someone to work out who they want to be in every role they play in life. Like, say, for example, uh, yourself, Blender, you know, like, you're a worker, like, say, so you're a naturopath, you're a mother, you're a wife, you're a daughter, a sister, all those sort of things. And it's about defining what's going to, ma- what role do I want to play, what values do I hold to that role, and what's important for me, you know? Like, is it calling... My sister once a week or is it popping in to my mother's and dropping off a cake once a week you know just things little things like that and then being able to say well this is who I am I've got a great self-awareness and this is how I'm going to walk through life and I love this who I am and only the person can define the values themselves I hope I haven't lost you with this one because
1: <laughs> no you a, this is my favorite so far <laughs>
2: Yeah, okay, so that's that's what I really love about working with people is when people say, because people will come in lost and they'll say, well, let's just, you know, get rid of the unhelpful thoughts, get you in the present and now let's work out why or, you know, who you want to be, who are you and what do you stand for, you know? Like if you hate your job, then make some moves to leave it. You're in your job half of your life you know like things like that life's too short there's always people will come in and say I can't do that you know and two or three years later I'll get a message and say you'll never guess what I'm doing I'll be like (laughs) you know that's fantastic but it takes it takes a bit of work and it takes courage but once you embrace it it's just a beautiful thing to you know to get the most out of your life I think
1: well and what's What's not important or worth it that doesn't take work?
2: Yep, that's
1: it. That's it. So, Sean, what would you say to someone if someone's listening to our show and they're thinking of seeing a psychologist or a counselor, but they're struggling because they're struggling with motivation and to take that next step to make a change, like maybe get a different job, change something in their life that they're not happy with, but they're feeling like they should be able to solve these issues by themselves, without help from anybody, what advice could you give them?
2: It's funny you say that because when people walk in, pretty much the first part of my job, I would say 75% of the time, is knocking down that wall of shame. I hear the words, I just feel so weak, why can't I do this myself? Or especially around addiction. I'm such, I've got everything going on in my life, why can't I stop drinking? For addiction, it's quite an easy one because when you people get that aha moment that they're actually medicating some underlying mental health issues then they're able to treat the mental health issues and the addiction can hopefully go away if it was that easy i'd be a millionaire but anyway (laughs) so but you know like i i know the feeling you know most people in this career line of work they've had their personal journey as well and hurdles to get over and that was me as well and I remember thinking I I remember even putting off getting better because I was I can do this I can do this and I was just so sad and just honestly to a point where I didn't really care if I lived or died you know this is I was 26 27 I'm 42 now so maybe 15 16 years ago and then something happened and I sort of surrendered and then The first part was that shame, you know, like I feel I was intelligent, I'd gotten good grades at uni, all that sort of stuff, but yet I couldn't do this one small thing and that was just get happy and make some good choices in my life. But once I got over that shame and realized that it wasn't my fault, it was what I'd learned, it's what what I'd observed and how I'd worked out the world was when I was a little kid. And that wasn't, you know, that's not my fault. It's definitely my fault if I keep doing the same mistakes and making those same choices over and over again. So once I made the connection with this is what I was observed and how I got to think this sort of thing, and for me it was I'm a bad person, I'm not okay, I'm not valued in this world. And once I realised that all that was rubbish... Then I worked at rebuilding my own self-esteem and happiness, and walking through life a lot happier. So shame is—it's not uncommon. In, I should be able to do this. I'm so successful, but it's—you know—it's instilled in us. It's deep in our psyche. So <laughs> there I you go. That, oh,
1: I think that Yeah, I think that would be so valuable for for anybody to basically just throw out the shame and realize that a lot of the things we deal with now are because of what we've incorporated into our core belief system and I, I know for me the most enlightening thing I think I've ever heard was these are core beliefs that we developed as chi- children and we got to evaluate them and decide which ones serve us now and which ones don't and really dig into them and write down why they don't serve you so that you can really throw them away
2: and that's it, that's it. and that's It's such a beautiful process. When it happens and you see that transformation in people, it's amazing, like I always tell people when they're committed and they say, yep, I'm gonna gonna change things, and I say, well, you get ready for some of the best times of your whole life. I sometimes get a bit envious because that initial growth, where those all those aha moments and the word enlightenment comes to me, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful process big wall that you knock down and it's usually that wall's full of shame when you
1: use the word enlightenment I loved how you described it as almost like that circle when you draw it in the person's solar plexus or their belly and we're holding it there and enlightenment is lightening up almost like getting rid of some of these beliefs
0: Mm -hmm.
1: getting rid of some of the shame and enlightenment do you think it's a, a one shot deal or is it a process and can it happen and then happen and then happen and continue to happen?
2: Uh, it's been a conversation I've had with a lot of people and personally and what I've seen in other people and in discussions is I can tell you the first time I ever even realized that I didn't even know the word but it happened to me. I'd been quite involved in some group therapy and uh, there'd, been, there'd been quite a bit of trauma around 17 for me involving a car accident and I hadn't dealt with that And then what happened was it was 10 years later and I'm in a group therapy setting and I just started crying and it was a Tuesday, I remember. I remember the song that was on, it was Cat Stevens' Can't Keep It In (laughs) and I just Mm -hmm. started crying and I didn't stop crying until Friday. Like, I, you know, like obviously it lightened a bit but it was like, It was just enlightenment. It was like I was floating, and then that was the time when I switched. And there's been moments along the way where it's like you lighten your load, and that's why, you know, like you feel lighter. You know, I'm I'm not sort of... I'm not trying to sell any diet regime to anyone out there, but you feel lighter. I don't Mm -hmm. know if the scales will tell you (laughs) are, but it's an amazing experience. I get... You know, I do feel those moments of enlightenment along the way. But, of course, the intensity of that first one where I I was spiritually dead for years, right? So to have that sort of wake-up was amazing. Yeah, but people talk about moments of enlightenment along the way and, of course, a lot of people can reach it through intense meditation and things like that. I'm just a novice at meditation, but I think it's a journey and there's little peaks along the way, <laughs>
1: For sure. Thank you, Sean. I'm going to give our listeners and myself and you just another 30-second break.
2: Uh-huh. That was
1: wonderful. And we will be back in about 30 seconds with What's Your Prescription for Balance.
2: Okay, thanks.
0: You're listening to What's Your Prescription for Balance with host Dr. Glenna Calder on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash Slash, what's your prescription for balance? Enjoy the show.
1: Welcome back to Watch Your Prescription for Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Glenna Calder, and today we're interviewing Sean Gisler, and we're discussing mental health and happiness. Welcome back, Sean. Thank you. So you mentioned that you lived in six different countries in the last fifteen years. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is there any particular lifestyle that really left an impression on you that was more supportive to mental health?
2: I think, like I talked about earlier, there's the family connection that looks after the mental health of their family more so than we do here. You know, I often hear people can't be bothered looking after their mother who's got dementia, so they pop her in the home and that. See, that sort of stuff doesn't really happen in Asia, Asian cultures so much because they have that family culture but I on the flip side Western culture has a much higher public awareness and an ever-growing acceptance you know so the flip side of that too is that that over acceptance can sometimes turn into complacency and then change becomes a foreign word I hear people oh well I'm depressed or oh don't worry they won't be able to come to the party because they're depressed and it becomes an excuse so that acceptance can sometimes become more damaged than good as well. But, you know, talking about Asian cultures, 10 years ago when I lived there, and I'd tell people in their language, I'd say that I was a psychologist, and, and they didn't even know that word. Like, I learned the word from the dictionary so I could tell people when they t- asked me what I did, and they didn't even know that word. Now, things have changed now. There's a lot more awareness and mental health but 10 years ago is not that long ago there was you know I couldn't even find a psychologist (laughs) so it wasn't really a thing and I think only one uni in the whole of um, the country I was in was teaching it and there was like four graduates a year as opposed to probably who knows how many in Canada here right back to my kids when my wife when I first started to have kids, my wife gave me a book and it was called The Continuum Concept. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book, but it highlights the benefits of parenting more like our ancestors, right? And like in a tribal way. And it's both psychologies coined it as attachment parenting. And I can see the benefits of that. And that's more about... um it's really fostering a really nurturing environment for those first five years of our kids, and like that, constantly comes up in psychology and developmental psychology that that first five years is so crucial. And I suppose the the tribes that still exist on Earth today—I don't know how many there are in Africa or in the Amazon region or whatever—but they um, parent like that, and they um, they hold their kids. You know, they talk about a fourth trimester you know, the kids are in their belly for three months, uh, three trimesters, but then they still hold them for the fourth one, and I, we really embrace that, and I think, and I've obviously we met other families that do that, because you know, there's groups that you meet up, and I see in those kids a real good sense of security and a nice, stable mental health. There might be a lot to be said to going back, way back to our grassroots, you know, when we were nomadic tribes.
1: After having a maybe my first or second child, I remember the whole concept of the fourth trimester and it made so much sense to me. Continuing it on, instead of having this nice warm place where there's constant food and a constant little white noise to all of a sudden, boom, into this cold world and not being touched and cradled all the time. It made so much sense. It explained that that whole first three months
2: of a child's life.
1: Ah, okay. And I can do that. I can
2: make a fourth trimester.
1: That helps me to Tell
2: me what to do. Oh, because there's, you know, the majority of the parenting experts and in the Western culture will tell you to let your kid cry themselves to sleep. Like, for me, that was unfathomable. How am I going to let this little baby who's just exited my wife's body cry themselves to sleep? (laughs) You know, like, if my wife was crying, I'm not going to let her lie in the corner and cry. I'm going to go over and nurture her. And, you know, like it's just it didn't make any sense. And I think if more people became aware of that, and you know, those first five years of kids' lives, it could change a lot of things.
1: So, Sean, I'm going to take another swing, like take us in a different direction. Do you think that we look to hills of some sort too quickly to solve problems that are a result of not accepting that this whole life is a journey? And that our job in this journey, and I think, I believe our main responsibility on this journey is to get to know ourselves and to find a way to love ourselves. Because I think then when we know ourselves, we can then know others and love others.
2: Oh, definitely. You know, like, that's definitely the goal of when I work with people is to get people to that point. But personally, you know, I don't have any pharmacological training, so like... If there is medications to be given, sometimes it can save lives, you know. Sometimes it can stop a depressed person from those suicidal thoughts or sometimes it can get an agoraphobic out the door and into the shopping centre or something like that. But personally, I try everything I can to support clients in avoiding that medication route because there's side effects and it just becomes another dependence, right? But we've got a fix-it society, you know. You've got a headache oh, don't drink two litres of water and fix it. Just take a tablet. Got indigestion? Oh well, stop eating high acid foods. Oh no, I'll just take um, an antacid. It works for some people, but I think long term, you know, you talk about people they get to their 60s and 70s and they start to look back on life, like, and they think, have I led a good life, or, you know, or have am I full of regret? And personally, it. it Eric Erickson talked about this final stage of life where we look back at life and we're full of integrity or we're full of despair and it scares me that how many people sit in despair in their 60s and 70s when they look back at life and say, you know what, I probably could have been a better parent or I could have been a better partner or I could have been a better friend or I I should have really been an artist or you only get one shot at it, (laughs) Unless you're Hindu. So it's just, I don't know, like it's just a bit of a driving force for me is that integrity versus despair as we get older. And I think that the only choice is to take this path that you talk about with learning to love yourself unconditionally and then you can't shine out love unless the love's turned on inside you, right? If there's no source, then there's no light. Yeah, I could go on for hours about this, but I know we don't have that time.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
1: I think I agree with you with
2: with whether it's pharmaceuticals, which
1: do many people have said it was, it saved me so much at this point in my life. And I think pharmaceuticals are wonderful, and I'm so glad that we have them. But they're not the answer; they're an assist. They're there to help us. That's there's so many different pieces of the puzzle, and there's so many different professionals that have a place at the table that I think we've got to use them and I think short-term they save us. But long-term, if we think that's the only thing that's got to be addressed, I think then we may have some regrets later on.
2: Mm, for sure. For sure.
1: And I think it's like all parts of different diseases. There's no one factor that's got us into the place where we're at today, so there's no one factor that's going to cure it or change it. There's, we're too complicated as beings. In some ways, sometimes I like to simplify it, but there's always so many different factors.
2: The one pill it rarely fixes it; it's just a band-aid. But you know, there's some there's some pretty severe chemical imbalances out there too that need a lot more than just therapy. So,
1: Don, is there one thing as we end our show? Is there one thing you'd like to leave with our listeners that you've learned along the happy trail that you think would be really valuable? to share
2: with our listeners probably this is where there's a book called the road less traveled it was written in 1978 and was by m scott peck and the first line of that book and i'll paraphrase it because i never remember it exactly but it goes something like life is difficult true but when we embrace this life is no longer difficult life becomes a wonderful thing and i think that's what I'd like people to know is that yeah life's really tough but if we jump in and we embrace it and start to realize the potential as human beings then life becomes this wonderful journey of happiness and the people you touch are happy and you know what I mean it's just it's a beautiful journey and as opposed Mm -hmm. to the grind that we get addicted to I suppose that's what I'll leave you with there Glenna.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I know our listeners uh, have enjoyed this, and the ones that will be listening to the, the archived show will enjoy this, because I've personally really enjoyed it, and when I re-listen to this, as I do with all the shows, I'm certainly going to have a, a pen and paper down jotting some things down for myself. Thanks again, and would you consider coming back on the show sometime, Sean?
2: I will. It was great. Thank you very much.
1: Perfect. Okay, take care.
2: Okay, bye-bye.
1: That was Sean Gildler with myself, your host, Dr. Glenna Calder for What's Your Prescription for Balance today and I'm going to leave you a song called Yellow Coat by Mary Jane Lamont and Wendy McIsaac.
0: Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. This is Deb Carosella. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for What's Your Prescription for Balance with Dr. Glenna Calder Thursday morning at 8 a.m.